We all know the story of Easter Island, the collapse of a once flourishing civilization as the last tree was cut down. To Jared Diamond, in his book Collapse, it was a case of econocide. Well, to the demonstrators of Extinction Rebellion, they also fear that if we do not change our behavior, and very soon, we're also heading in the same direction as a result of climate change. It is difficult to imagine what was going on in the minds of the final generation on Easter Island as they cut down the last tree and lost their fuel and building material. Why did they not stop sooner? How did they debate their plight and what steps did they take? Well, the situation they found themselves in is the example of what Garrett Hardin in 1968 called the tragedy of the commons. The situation where a common resource, forest, fisheries, grazing land, belongs to no one individual. As he said, ruin is the destination to which all men rush. Each pursues its own best interest in a society that believes in the freedom of the commons. Freedom in a commons brings ruins to all. As he saw, each forester, fisherman or farmer has an individual interest to maximise the number of trees cut down, of fish caught or sheep grazing in the common pool of resources. If any one individual stopped, others might not. So everybody would continue. They would follow their own individual self-interest to the ultimate harm of everyone, when there were no trees, no fish, no grass left. And as he said, throughout history, human exploitation of the earth has produced this progression. Colonise, destroy, move on. Well, that might work for one or two generations, but ultimately a future generation will suffer, as on East of Ireland. Hardin's own concern was not with climate change, but with population growth. He thought that population would continue to grow because the welfare state meant that the imprudent did not die out. He therefore argued that people must surrender their freedom to breed. He said, if each human family were dependent only on its own resources, if the children of improvident parents starved to death, there would be no public interest in controlling the breeding of families. But he said, our society is deeply committed to the welfare state and hence is confronted with another aspect of the tragedy of the commons. Well, Garrett Hardin's analysis is a very disturbing combination of Malthusianism, population outstripping resources, and eugenics, trying to breed a fitter race. Now, when I was a student back in the 1960s, the risk of population growth was what was on the agenda. The idea that the earth would exceed the carrying, the uh, population growth would exceed the carrying capacity of the planet. And we found that in reports such as the Club of Rome report on limits to growth in 1972. That report, which is a bestseller at the time, argued that the behaviour mode of the system, the planet, is clearly that of overshoot and collapse. And they argued for a state of global equilibrium by deliberate reduction of population with limits on individual freedom to have children and to consume resources. And thinking like that informed the one-child policy of China. Now, these debates have now moved on to climate change rather than population. Eugenics, as argued for by Hardin, are rightly beyond the pale. And we now see some of the social consequences of China's one-child policy. The fact that the elderly now only have one child, the problem of putting pressure upon the family. So actions we take now can have long-term impact on future generations. 
Now, these debates back in the 1970s did lead to an interest in the ways in which common pool resources can be preserved for future generations. How over-exploitation can be prevented and econocide avoided. And the thinking that emerged at that time can help us think about how to respond to climate change. Now, historically, there were three different approaches to how to resolve the problem of the tragedy of the commons. The first was property rights. If the common land, the, com the forest, could be allocated to an individual, that individual would protect that land against over-exploitation by others. It was less easy to do that in the case of fishery. You can't really farm, dive, divide up the ocean like you could a common field. It was not so easy for pollution of the atmosphere, as happened after the Industrial Revolution. So the second approach would be state action. State action, regulation against smoke pollution, against polluting rivers, government banning emissions or imposing fines. Now, that could work at the local or the national level. It could stop smog in London or in Los Angeles. It was not so easy to deal with spillovers across national boundaries. The third approach was to have institutions to manage resources. And one of the most important books on this was Eleanor Ostrom, who wrote uh, the book Governing the Commons in 1990. And she argued that Hardin had basically got it wrong, that communities could create institutions which could manage resources to prevent their overuse and to prevent harm to future generations. And what she did was to consider actual communities like fishermen in Maine or forests in Nepal. And she found there diverse institutions could manage successfully the common pool resources to avoid the tragedy of the commons and to avoid econocide. Now, she found that success in creating such institutions depended upon a number of factors. And I'll come back to these later on in the lecture because these factors are also important in trying to mitigate climate change. So success would depend upon, first of all, the ability to exclude external people who are not entitled to the common resource. Secondly, the size of the resource system itself mattered. If it's a moderate territory, you could more easily self-organise than if it was large scale. Thirdly, it depends how mobile the resources were. Self-organisation was, was easier if it's a fixed or stationary resource, like a lake. It's harder if it's mobile, like a river. Fourthly, there's the number of users. If you have a large number of users, it might be expensive to regulate. On the other hand, more people, there could be more resource, make it easier to regulate, so it depends. It depends how productive the system is. If the resource is overabundant, then well, why bother to regulate? If it's already exhausted, it might be a battle of everybody to use those limited resources. So it depends, again, how uh, productive the system is. It depends whether there are shared moral and ethical standards, trust and reciprocity. It depends on decision-making. Are people able to participate in the use of the resource and deciding how it's used? Can you have effective monitoring by people who are considered to be if I, neutral and impartial? Can you have sanctions against those who violate community rules? And are there mechanisms for conflict resolution which are cheap and of easy access? Now, if we take those 
different approaches, those three possible solutions to the tragedy of the commons, we can see that they are actually all difficult to apply to the issue of climate change. The first option is, of private ownership is problematic. Can property rights in the atmosphere and in the future of the planet be established? Well, probably not. Secondly, state action. Well, that is possible to use for controlling emissions within one country, the example I gave of smog in London, but most individual nations are a small part of the total global emission. Other countries can free ride if one acts. How do you create global state action? And thirdly, institutions are difficult to create for they need to be global. They cannot apply to the whole world as they can to fields or forests. It's not possible to exclude people from the planet as you could exclude them from the use of a forest. The group is now the entire population of the world, or at least all the governments of the world. The atmosphere is even more difficult to control than a lake. Certainly not like, uh, like a river, it's more difficult than, than that. And we cannot assume common values of trust and reciprocity between all nations. Monitoring, enforcement and sanctions are difficult at a global level. Well, at the end of her life, Eleanor Ostrom puzzled over how to scale up the institutions she talked about in her book of 1990, how to scale them up to the global level. And I will come back to her thoughts at the end of the lecture. So, the political difficulties are particularly powerful in the case of climate change. They raise intergenerational or intertemporal concerns in a stark way. Fish stocks, forests, grazing land can recover from over-exploitation within a generation or two if remedial action is taken. Carbon in the environment is there for much longer and our action now can affect future generations who are not yet born and if we do not behave ourselves now, they might not be born. In this lecture, my aim is not to venture into the science of climate change, which other people could do much better than I could. Rather, it is to consider the policy responses to climate change. How should we deal with the tragedy of the commons? Who should act, at what cost, and how to deal with spillovers across national boundaries? How should we respond to free riders who continue with carbon emissions even as others take action? And to what extent should we control our behaviour for the benefit of future generations. Now, in looking at these in fact, more political and economic and social questions, I want to start off by considering the apparently very technical, one might almost say geeky topic, of social discount rates. The members of Extinction Rebellion as they go on their marches and demonstrations, probably do not chant out, change the discount rate. Well, perhaps they should. As I argued in the first lecture in this series, very often policy is driven by measures devised by economists that are not publicly debated and are embedded deep in government departments and in models and algorithms, but which affect very much the policies which are being adopted. And we should probe at these uh, me methods of argument and calculation in order to understand what's involved, not just taking them on trust. So what I want to do now is to probe at this question of the social 
discount rate, which affects how much governments spend on climate change mitigation and how urgently they approach that question. So, when I gave the first lecture in this series of three, a comment was posted on the Gresham College website congratulating, I think sarcastically, uh, Gresham College for, I quote, introducing yet another Marxist adjective to undo the standalone noun justice, intergenerational. Well, the term, in fact, has nothing at all to do with Marxism. And, alas, it was not invented by Gresham College. In fact, it has been a standard theme in philosophy and economics for well over a century. And I'll start off by taking one figure, Arthur Pigou, who was the professor of economics at Cambridge, a colleague slightly older uh, of Keynes. He remarked in 1920 that our telescopic function is defective. We see future pleasures, as it were, on a diminished scale. This reveals far-reaching economic disharmony, for it implies that people distribute their resources between the present, the near future, and the remote future on the basis of a wholly irrational preference. What he means is people are looking at the future through the wrong end of the telescope and making it look smaller. He went on to say that efforts directed towards the remote future are starved relatively to those directed towards the near future. It is not so much that this decision in Pigou's analysis was immoral, it was mistaken. It was mistaken because we might consume now rather than saving for the future. All societies have to invest in the future. So the question is, if you're, if you're, if you're not doing that, then the future will suffer. So he's trying to work out the savings rate. It also followed to Pigou that individuals and families could not be left themselves to look after the remote future. As he said in 1924, the state should protect the interests of the future in some degree against our preference for ourselves over our descendants. Now, his line was taken up by another Cambridge academic, intellectual, Frank Ramsey. They were both fellows of King's College, Cambridge. Frank Ramsey was a Cambridge mathematician, economist and philosopher who very sadly died in 1930, shortly before his 27th birthday. And this is a warning for anybody who goes to Cambridge, don't swim in the River Cam, because he probably died from Wilde's disease caught from the river. He was a colleague of Keynes and of Wittgenstein, friend of both of them, and in many people's eyes, he was a greater economist or philosopher than either of those men. His article of 1928, A Mathematical Theory of Saving, is still a foundation stone of how we think about these issues. He started his article with the deceptively simple question, how much of its income shall a nation save? Now, this is an intergenerational or intertemporal issue. If we consume a lot now, we are not setting aside enough savings for investment that will benefit the future. On the other hand, if we save too much, we hold down our current enjoyment, and we might actually be producing excess savings, which will not have profitable outlets, and therefore will not benefit either ourselves or the future as much as it might. The question is where to draw that line between present consumption and saving, which will help the future. So it's a very important issue, which is fundamental to economics. Now, Ramsey argued 
that, in fact, we should not discount later enjoyments in comparison with earlier ones. He said it is ethically indefensible and arises merely from the weakness of the imagination. So we don't discount the enjoyments of future generations. We don't look through the wrong end of the telescope. He went beyond Pigou. He said neglecting the remote future was not only mistaken, but it was immoral and, in and unethical. To this particular tradition in Cambridge then, future people should count for the same as present people. Now you might think that that is self-evident, but in fact that view is rejected by most economists who do discount later enjoyments. Okay, so there's a simple issue. Suppose I offer you a cake now or a cake in two years' time. Most people would probably take the immediate satisfaction of the cake now. They might calculate that they might be dead in a year, or they might be rich in a year, so they could actually afford to buy three cakes in a year. Uh, so, in other words, a, a, a cake in the future is worth less in real terms than, than, than one cake now. We discount all the time future benefits. Or in the case of the environment and climate change, we discount future damage. Why do we do that? Well, there are three reasons here. One is time preference. We prefer to have immediate satisfaction rather than to delay consumption. If we're going to delay consumption, we would need to be paid interest. That, that is what we're paid to delay uh, spending money now. So we can use the amount of interest which we would be paid to delay consumption as an observed measure of how much we're discounting the future. So it's, it's a descriptive observation, the interest rate. Secondly, we might change our consumption behaviour as income rises. As income rises in the future, we might not spend such a large proportion to secure the same level of satisfaction. And thirdly, the future might well be richer. If we're thinking about the current moment, we would say it is ethically fair to tax richer people more than poorer people. In other words, you want to tax the rich more than the poor. But if the future is going to be rich, richer than we are, then we should not delay our consumption now because we could impose a tax, the cost upon the future generation. So for these three reasons, then, we might say we don't, look after, we don't delay our consumption now, the future could look after itself uh, better. So we work out from these three measures how much any benefit or damage is worth in 10, 50, 100 years' time into the future. This intergenerational calculation is not Marxist. It's used by the Treasury in its green book to decide whether to build a railway here or a road, a road there. It's used all the time. It's a standard part of uh, government calculations. Now... By this stage, you're probably wondering, what on earth has this got to do with climate change? To which the answer is, a lot. Because what discount rate we use has a major impact on how much we spend to mitigate climate change and whether we treat it as urgent or not. The discount rate has a major impact upon policy and I will take two key players in this to show why that is the case, or how that is the case. The first is Nick Stern, Lord Stern, who wrote a report for the British government in 2007. In that book, he had a very low discount rate 
of 1.4%. His discount rate was low because he said the time preference, remember what I said about the time preference, is only 0.1%. He put it so so low just to take account of there might be a meteor strike which might wipe us out so we don't have the ability to enjoy our, our keg in the future. What he wanted, therefore, to do is not to take a descriptive approach, but a prescriptive approach, like Ramsey. We should value the future as much as we value ourselves, except for the fact they might all be wiped out by a meteor strike. He therefore argued that $1 trillion of damage in 100 years' time would be worth in the future 247 billion pounds. That's a lot. Therefore, we need to take action immediately and drastically. Investment now will be worthwhile to make that saving. And he argued we should spend 1% of total production to reduce greenhouse gases. So he is following the same line as Pigou and Ramsey. If you care little about the future, you will care little about climate change. That is not a position which has much foundation in ethics, so like, uh, like Ramsey. And if little or no value were placed on prospects in the long-run future, then climate change would be seen as much less of a problem. If, however, one thinks about the ethics in terms of most standard ethical frameworks, there's every reason to take these prospects very seriously. So what Sturd is doing is saying, act now, quickly and extensively. William Nordhaus, an American economist who won the Nobel Prize for economics, doesn't agree. He's not a climate change denier, And he did point out in this book of 2013 that there is a tendency for current generations to ride free by pushing the cost of dealing with climate change onto future generations. So he does accept that we need to act. The question is, how much? He takes a discount rate, which in various of his books ranges from 6% to 4.3%. It's descriptive. He's saying, how much interest do we need to be paid in order to delay consumption? So rather than taking an ethical stance, he's taking a descriptive stance. At a 6% discount rate, $1 trillion worth of damage caused in 100 years' time is only valued at £2.5 billion. It's negligible. So that means it's hardly enough to justify costs of reducing greenhouse gases now. It's better to spend the money on other things, health, education, whatever. So he recommends spending only 0.1% of total production, or $9 a head. So action would be slow and modest, because the costs now are too high relative to the discounted benefits in the future. So he argues then we need to use a discount rate which is reflecting the actual market as it operates, market opportunities, rather than taking an abstract definition of equity, which is what uh, Stern was doing. And the discount rate should be set so that our investable funds are devoted to the most productive uses. That could be health, curing tropical diseases, education around the world, basic research. Well, that's fair up to a point. Those are all all desirable things. But what if we try to do both of them? What if we raise taxes to do both, including perhaps a tax on carbon emissions? Now, these technical debates matter. The governments are using these methods to set a carbon price which demonstrates whether fossil fuels or renewables are cheaper. The discount rate determines how urgent action is compared with alternative spending and social 
and ethical assumptions and political choices are hidden in seemingly technical and objective measures. We need to understand the assumptions which are embedded there. My own view is that Stern's approach following Ramsey is the correct one. We should apply temporal impartiality. And why should we do that? Well, because think of a number of reasons why. Time discounting might be applicable to building a railway. It might be sensible to ask, is it better to spend money on this railway or that road? But if we get it wrong, if we were wrong to build high speed two, it is not an existential issue. We write it off. That doesn't apply to climate change. We can't move to another planet. So rather than a descriptive approach, how people behave in the real world, we should have a prescriptive approach, how they ought to behave. Just because we observe people acting a certain way doesn't mean to say it's an ethical way to behave. Our own individual time preference in choosing to save or, or consume as self-interested individuals do you want the cake now or later, is not the same as how we might think about future generations. If I asked you the question, do you think future generations matter? You might well say, yes, we might take a normative or altruistic attitude. Future generations are not present to have voice about their interest. Well, they should have voice. They should be given some ethical value. Will the future actually be richer? Well, that assumes that, can, that growth will continue. But in fact, our own behaviour now might make that growth in the future less likely. Growth in global output, according to the Nordhaus approach, is necessary in order to pay for the damage we are now causing. But what if the future growth, if the future doesn't grow so much? In any case, Growing now, in order to solve a problem in the future, is itself making the problem worse because it's increasing the carbon, out, carbon emissions and, and a larger ecological footprint. In any case, future generations might have different assumptions about growth. They might say, well, why were you doing that? We didn't want to do that. We wanted a different form of society. The future also has a right to enjoy a world whose climate or environment has not been degraded. And this takes me to another report, and that is Partha Dasgupta. Partha Dasgupta's recent report argues that the future has a right to enjoy a world which has ecological and bio biological diversity. And as he points out, what counts is not only what can be counted in the gross domestic product. So part of the sculptor's recent report for the government, the economics of biodiversity, argues that we need to get away from the approach of simply measuring gross domestic product. And I might just point out that until he retired, Partha Descripta was the Frank Ramsey Professor of Economics at Cambridge. He says that nations need to adopt a system of economic accounts that record an inclusive measure of wealth. Wealth includes nature as an asset. Gross domestic product is, he says, a faulty application of economics. Gross domestic products is a flow of market dollars of output a year, not inclusive wealth, which is the entire stock of assets that society owns. And that stock would include nature. In GDP, the G stands for gross. In other words, it doesn't take account of depreciation of assets, net. And it might be that we're growing by destroying nature. So he says, an economy could record a high rate of growth of GDP by depreciating its assets, but one would not know that from national statistics. In recent decades, 
eroding natural capital has been precisely the means the world economy is deployed for enjoying what is routinely celebrated as economic growth. The founding father of economics, Adam Smith, asked after the wealth of nations, not the GDP of nations. So he points out in the book that if you take produce capital, actual you know, capital, factories, housing, whatever, and investment in human capital, they might be growing, but natural capital is shrinking. So he says that what we need to do is to change our attitudes so that if you look at this diagram here, which is from his book, you embed the economy in the biosphere. It's, the economy is not external to the biosphere. So he's arguing for fundamental change in the way uh, of uh, understanding the economy. So my message so far is this. Don't be fooled by technical economics and highly mathematical models. Always ask what are the assumptions upon which the argument rests. Economics is not physics, it's ideology. Now, if we agree, as I hope you do, that immediate action is needed on a large scale, what policies could we use? Well, I, can't, I don't have time to go through all of these, but if you look at the literature, there are different approaches. One is adaptation. We just accept the climate is going to change, we adapt to it. We live with the changes, but I think that's rather doubtful. Geoengineering. We intervene to reverse the impact of carbon emissions by sequestration, carbon capture. Well, that is advocating untested and costly solutions which might have harmful, unintended consequences. We can change our personal behaviour. Well, perhaps we should change our personal behaviour, but this can also be a way of deflecting uh, from desirable systematic change by saying it's all the fault of Bill Gates for flying in his private jet or that we go, if we were allowed to, um, jetting across the world on holiday. The real issues come down to supply or demand side. The supply side is to ban pipelines, ban fracking, ban petrol cars or gas and oil burners in a new house. It's a regulatory response. The other approach is to have a demand side approach by pricing carbon. Now, very often that approach is denounced by progressives, by Extinction Rebellion, by the supporters of the Green New Deal as being neoliberal. And neoliberal is a bad thing in their eyes. So what I now want to turn to is, should we use price signals? Should we use that demand side uh, approach? Now, I said a moment ago that the word Marxist is often used to criticise an approach. This has nothing to do with Marxism. It's a way of just denigrating an approach you don't like. Well, equally, the term neoliberal is used by progressives as a catch-all term to reject ideas that might, in fact, be entirely sensible. And I think this is what has happened over the idea of a carbon tax, or what is called cap and trade. In 2013... William Nordhaus argued for both a carbon tax and for cap and trade schemes. Now, having criticised him earlier on, I think in this sense, he's right. His central point is that we need to raise the price of carbon. At present, emitters of carbon dioxide are dumping carbon in the atmosphere free of charge. We need a level playing field against their behaviour, to, to rectify their behaviour against zero carbon users. And as he says, the most, in, uh, most effective incentive is a high price of carbon. So we could have a carbon tax, that is, a tax upon firms and households for the amount of carbon that they emit. The alternative is cap and trade. A country sets a cap to its total amount of carbon emissions, and then issues permits to emit up to a certain amount. So a firm is given a permit up to a certain amount. 
if it reduces admissions, it can then sell those permits to the highest bidder who is not able to reduce the emissions. That will lead to the most efficient outcome. It was used in the United States in 1990 for sulfur emissions. It was used then by the, by the European Union in its emissions trading scheme. And when the United Kingdom left Brexit, we set up in this country our own United Kingdom emissions trading scheme on the 1st of January this year. Now, the attraction of the carbon tax is that the revenue goes to the government and not, as in cap and trade, being a trade between emitters. Also, in the carbon tax, the price is more constant, whereas under the trading scheme, it varies according to the buying and selling of permits on the market. So a carbon tax gives revenue, and it also gives you a more consistent price signal. Nordhaus thinks that either approach is better than any other. He said the price of carbon signals to consumers what goods and services are carbon intensive. It provides incentive to producers to move to low carbon technologies. It provides incentive to inventors and investors to develop new technology. He argues that setting a hard target, a, a target for emissions, as in the Paris Climate Change Agreement, is not as effective as a cost-benefit analysis as a price signal. Now, he, uh, he suggests a carbon tax of $25 a tonne. Now, as you might imagine from his earlier analysis, that is on the low side. It's lower than many others propose. So, He's in favour, then, of a carbon tax to reduce undesirable activity. Why are progressives not always in favour of it? Well, partly because of the way he then goes on to justify the carbon tax. It makes the progressives uneasy. Because he sees the carbon tax as a way of getting rid of inefficient government regulation. In other words, it's hostile to the state and the progressives might prefer to have state regulation. But also, he says, the revenue from the carbon tax can be reduced to, used to reduce fiscal deficits and reduce other taxes. And he says, it's an ideal policy for a true conservative, because it's going to preserve the planet with economic incentives and minimal government intervention. As he says, we can effectively slow global warming in a conservative way. But in fact, the supporters of the Green New Deal want to slow global warming in a progressive way by having a more activist state. Nordhaus thought he would please fiscal conservatives and environmental activists. Indeed, carbon pricing was supported by all the Republican former chairs of the United States President's Council of Economic Advisers. But in fact, it could split as well as divide. Uh, you find that on the right, the Koch brothers, funders of the Tea Party, opposed carbon tax. They were in cahoots with coal mines and oil companies, which thought this was designed against them. And on the other hand, on the, on the, on the left, some people were against the carbon tax because they said it was a neoliberal agenda. Now, a few countries have adopted a carbon tax. Canada has. It has a tax of $15, rising to $38 by 2022. But Bernie Sanders, before the last presidential election in America, rejected carbon pricing. It's not part of the Green New Deal. 600 environmental organisations wrote to Congress in 2019 supporting the Green New Deal, but they said, we will vigorously oppose any legislation that promotes corporate schemes that place profits over community burdens and benefits, including market-based mechanisms such as carbon and emissions trading and offsets. Now, I think that that was foolish that this indeed is a way in which one can try to shape behaviour. 
Same thing happened in, in Australia. The Labour government there proposed a carbon trading scheme in 2011 to come into effect in 2012. It was attacked by the Murdoch press and portrayed as a burden upon business and households. It was lost when Tony Abbott won the election. It was repealed in 2014. And the Greens in Australia voted against the carbon tax because it was seen as some neoliberal activity. So most climate groups opposed cap and trade because they said it was the creation of property rights to pollute. If you remember how I said you can resolve the issue about uh, the global commons by creating a property right. Well, they said this is a property right. You shouldn't have a property right in the right to pollute. What the progressives preferred was action on the supply side. Fossil fuel divestment. Lots of students argue for universities to divest from fossil fuels. Opposition to pipelines. Opposition to fracking. Well, that's all very good. But I don't think that one should also reject carbon pricing. It's not a neoliberal agenda. It's not necessarily a regressive or conservative approach. It can, in fact, be very much a uh, progressive approach. It had a bad name in France when President Macron was introducing higher pricing of fossil fuels and so on, alongside taxes which were cut on the rich, uh, cutting um, benefits and, and uh, reducing uh, employment rights. But it doesn't need to be in, in that, that way. A carbon tax can also be radical and progressive. It was proposed by Thomas Piketty, the progressive left's favourite economist. He said that a carbon tax could in fact be progressive by giving an progressive in the sense of putting more, more tax upon the rich. By exempting households which admit less than the global average, increasing the carbon tax to $100 a tonne on anybody who goes above the average, taking it up to $500 a tonne if you're 2.3 times above the global average, and at $1,000 if you're 9.1 times above the global average. I'm not quite sure where these precise figures come from, but you can see it's actually going higher and higher the more uh, you are polluting. And then you can take that extra revenue to give to those people who will be suffering uh, from fuel poverty uh, and so on. And such ideas don't only come from left-wing French economists, it also comes from the IMF. In 2019, the IMF suggested a global carbon tax rising to $75 a tonne by 2030 to be distributed to poorer households and communities and to invest in new jobs and renewable energy. So I think that a carbon tax makes a lot of sense. It's better than the... Uh, the trading system because it has a, a wider coverage. It could be used to compensate losers. The big issue is how to make it politically acceptable. And as this uh, graph here shows, that um, the percentage of people who support uh, the, uh, uh, the tax drops very, very rapidly. And most people only pay a quite a modest uh, level of tax. Um, on that graph, it comes out as uh, majority support would be in the range of 2 to $8, which is not enough. So perhaps this is an area where there should be a focus of the radical uh, Green New Deals, but how to make people accept a higher level of global taxation, how to create a support for that. Now, I'm going to conclude by looking at one final area, which is coming back to uh, what I was arguing earlier on from Ostrom. How do we try to create uh, collective action for the global commons? 
at what level should we act? Now, I said it's more difficult to do this, to create the organisational forms for global action on climate change. Securing international agreement has not been easy so far, and existing multilateral organisations like the World Trade Organisation have actually been weakened. So what can we do? And that is the question that Eleanor Ostrom uh, considered. So just a few reflections uh, on this. Now, there have been some attempts at uh, global action, one of which is called Red Plus, reducing emissions from deforestation and forest degradation, Red Plus, which is complementary which was completed at the UN Climate Change Conference, COP21, in 2015. Now, deforestation is a, is a major contributor to global emissions, and forests, like the Amazon, are a major sink for carbon. So the idea here was that people go out and they create a benchmark, a threshold, by looking at the rainforest. They establish a, a reference baseline. You set a target then you monitor against that target, you report the results, you verify the results. But then, when we get on a plane, and we fly somewhere, we can have a carbon offset to put the money into this system. Uh, countries which are trying to meet their national targets set by the Paris Climate Agreement can use it then to fund this system, to keep the rainforest going. But there are shortcomings with this. How do you set the reference level? How do you measure it? How do you safeguard indigenous communities? How do you make sure there's not leakage? Instead of using timber, you may use cement, which is even worse. The funds are modest. And really, it all depends upon local decisions about how land tenure is used here, how politics plays out in the, in the Amazon. So, but there are, have been discussions then about this sort of uh, change, this, this global initiative through COP, which is going to be in Glasgow perhaps later this year, the commitments of Paris, Red Plus. But what Ostrom says is that, in fact, we shouldn't just think about this as top-down imposition. The problem with the top-down imposition is it will lead to reaction against it. So when the IMF said there should be a tax of $75 a tonne on carbon emissions, the immediate result was outcry by Scott Morrison, the Australian Prime Minister, against what he called an unaccountable internationalist bureaucracy, which seeks to elevate global institutions above the authority of nation states to direct national policies. And again, you might imagine what Bolsonaro would say, well, it did say to Macron when Macron said, stop cutting down the rainforest in the Amazon and I will give you compensation. Um, Bolsonaro said, go away um, and why don't you go and put the whole of France back under trees, which you cut down in the past. Now, it's very difficult to deal with this sort of, this sort of issue. What Ostrom argues is don't start at the top. Think globally and act locally, as the phrase is. The approach, she says, should be polycentric. What you should do is start at the local level. The global level won't work. It's too complex. You're not going to get buy-in. There are too many actors. There are too many interests. Global solutions might, might help somewhat, but what we need to do is to think about what level can you get that sort of institutional support a commitment that she talked about. So local action can have a global impact. Actions generating emissions occur at all levels, households, businesses. Action should be as close to events and actors as possible by creating cooperation at diverse levels where you can create mutual trust. So what she's arguing is start at the local, build up. I would also add to it carbon taxes, and those carbon taxes can go alongside interventions by international institutions, uh, 
So if one country reduces its emissions by using a carbon tax, but another country does not and is selling its commodities to the country which has reduced, that country which is importing those goods could impose a border tax upon the carbon that is contained in the goods which are coming. That can be controlled, regulated by the World Trade Organization, which the new Director General of the World Trade Organization is supporting. So we can have global action, but it needs to be considered within what Ostrom calls this polycentric approach, all levels. Now, what is my conclusion to this, uh, this, this argument? Well, my argument is uh, as, as follows. We need social science as well as climate science if we are to take effective action. We should follow Frank Ramsey. It is ethically indefensible to discount later generations which should count for as much as us. That implies spending a larger sum immediately. In measuring harm and growth, we should include natural capital. It is not enough to say that the future will be richer in terms of gross domestic product, which is an inadequate measure. We should not reject the use of price signals through carbon taxes. They're not necessarily neoliberal projects. They can be progressive projects. And action needs to be at all levels. But in considering local action and compliance, we should also encourage global agreement on monitoring border taxes uh, to make sure that there are not free riders on the system. And we need then to act to help future generations. Unfortunately, we will not be there to receive their gratitude. But ethical behaviour now should be its own reward. Thank you. Professor Donson, thank you very much for a really interesting, thought-provoking lecture. Um, it has provoked some questions in our well, online audience. <laughs> yes, so um, if I could just direct a few of those to you. We will try to get to most of the questions. We may not make them all, but let's give it a go. Um, the first question asks, when price premiums for renewables equal zero in relation to fossil fuels, then the industry will move. Hmm. So is government funding essential or do we rely on private enterprise? Well, certainly that's, that's part of it. I think that uh, the, the reduction in the, uh, the cost of generating wind, wind power and um, uh, solar power is, is, is now com competitive with um, a lot of uh, the, uh, the, fo the fossil fuels. Uh, so I think that's certainly going to be, be part of the, the, the trend. Uh, one point which um, I was going to make in the, in the lecture, but I, I cut out for a lack of time, is that I mentioned Scott Morrison, uh, who uh, has supported fossil fuel industry in, in Australia and exporting coal from uh, Queensland and so on. But you also get the situation whereby in uh, New South Wales, the state premier there has said, uh, we're going to make New South Wales a sort of energy superpower by, uh, by having solar, solar energy. Uh, and this will be cheaper, we'll be able to, to compete more. So, yeah, certainly um, the, the private um, industry is, is part of that. But we must make sure there's a level playing field because sometimes the, the fossil fuel industry has got subsidies uh, which the, uh, the renewable sector might, might not. Uh, and, of course, the, what the present government is doing in this country is trying to, to, trying to rectify that. Having just myself installed an air source heat pump with, uh, with a government grant, um, uh, my behaviour has been shifted uh, by, by that, uh, that government in intervention. Uh, in time, I'm sure that will, there will not need to be uh, given that subsidy. Okay, um, a more general question. Um, sorry, shouldn't we be asking our children? Some of them are deeply disturbed by their fears for the future. And by the way, 
the, the questioner says, I was one of the generation uh, at those lectures in the late 60s about the population explosion. Well, I'm sure that um, <laughs> we should be asking, I don't have children, but I'm sure we should be ask, asking children. And uh, you, you may have noticed uh, the difference between the age profile on my uh, on two slides. Mm. Um, I think the average age there is probably about the same as my age. Uh, whereas the average age in my opening slide is, shall we say, uh, if I go back so there, the slightly younger. One, yeah. uh, I think it's, it's the young generation are really concerned about, about this. I mean, obviously, Extinction Rebellion, the, the, the school children uh, not uh, uh, going to school on certain days and, and protesting, it's, it's very much the children are, are concerned about it. We have a couple of questions specific to carbon taxes. Right. Um, the question is, isn't the problem with carbon taxes that they will be passed on to consumers and poorer consumers will be harder hit than wealthy ones? Wouldn't rationing, for example, of air travel be more fair? Well, yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. I, I don't think that the tax necessarily needs to, to be regressive. Um, as I was arguing from, from Piketty and the, and, and the IMF. Um, I think it, this really comes down to an ideological point, does, doesn't mm. it? Uh, what, what you feel... I mean, Nordhaus wants to get rid of regulation and, um, and state action. He wants, to, wants us to ration our behaviour by price signals. Uh, and I, there, there's a lot to be said for that. I suppose you could say... Uh, the government does that already on things like taxes upon alcohol or, or taxes upon petrol. There is already a carbon tax in a sense, so the tax, tax upon every time we fill up our cars. Um, how, it's probably easier to do it through the price signal, I think, than, than by, by rationing. What, what are we going to do? Are we going to have some sort of, you know, here is a certificate you can have for a, um, you know, your, your one international flight flight a year. Uh, there, there are other ways of doing it. I just noticed this morning in the, the newspaper that the French government has just banned Air France from flying between French cities where there's already a train service. So that, that's another way of try, trying to, uh, to, sh to shape be behaviour. I think really, the, the question comes down, how do we change people's behaviour? Is it rationing? You know, like in the Second World War, is it by price signals? Is it by government action over say you can't have an air an airport here? Um, you've got to use the train. I think that comes down to an ideological question. That's interesting. Um, another question about carbon tax: Should we not work towards stopping the use of fossil fuel rather than making profit from carbon tax, which means that carbon is still allowed to be emitted? Carbon yeah. tax can help to reduce carbon, but should the goal not be to stop fossil fuel use? Well, this comes down to the supply side against demand side um, argument. I, I think that my point was that some people in the Green, green New Deal argument um, are going entirely for the, uh, the supply side. Stop the fracking, stop the coal mine in Cumbria. Yeah. Um, fine, I've, I've got no problem with that personally at, at, at all. Uh, but I don't think you should then exclude the demand side one because uh, I think in the realistic world we're not going to suddenly stop all fossil fuel everywhere in the world. Uh, what we might be able to do is if, if, we, if we ban fossil fuels in this, this country and Scott Morrison in Australia doesn't, then what we need to do then, is the point I rather skipped over, we could say if we're going to import anything which, which has fossil fuel embedded in it, then we put a border tax on. Hmm. So we have a carbon tax on, on, on carbon that we admit, but we then make sure that other people who are still using um, fossil fuels are not getting away with being free, free riders. And of course this is a big issue with, with China because I think 
the figure that I saw most recently was 58% of Chinese electricity uh, generation is still from fossil fuels. Now they're switching very rapidly, uh, but we, I think we need to try and compensate for, for, for that by, you know, by, by having the carbon, using the carbon tax. And you also do need to have some fossil fuels, uh, unless I'm mistaken, for things like making um, steel. So we're not going to get away from it completely. So I think we need, we need an eclectic mix. We need, we, need, we need both supply side and demand side. The thing which worried me was that um, by opposing carbon taxes, we, we might be giving up one of the levers we could have to shape behaviour. And one last question. Um, the discount rate does not take account of technology improvements. For example, battery costs uh, reduced 80% over the last 10 years. Yeah. It's more, I guess that's more of an observation than well, a question. Well, yeah, I think that, uh, <laughs> I, I think that's, that's why, I mean, I think it's a very, it's a very interesting question about, about batteries. I, I, w I wish I knew, knew uh, more, more about it. Um, I have colleagues in Cambridge who, who work on, on this, so I, I try to uh, keep, keep up with it. Um, there, there, are, there are all sorts of issues about batteries as well, about um, how they're made and what the technology is. And there's also, a, there's, if I, there's a geo, there's, there are geopolitical issues behind this as well. I'm, I'm not a physicist or an engineer mm. or a chemist or less. But if you think about what is going to happen, a lot of rare earths and so on used in lithium and whatever and cobalt for batteries are coming from the Congo. Um, so you've got a failed state and you've also got major Chinese investment. Uh, China is making a rapid transition to battery technology. Um, I think they're, they're the major producer of electric cars. They're going to benefit in the, long, in the longer term. Who, so other people are going to lose. So countries which are fossil fuel producers, where a large part of their revenue comes from the, uh, the generation of oil and, and coal, will, will lose out. So it's going to be a geopolitical um, impact of these technological changes. I think that, again, this is why I say we need to have social science and political science thinking about these issues as well as the technologists.